This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another week of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. Not a long time friend here in the studio with me today. <laughs> we got the man, Justin, with PPB. PPG Energy, real quick, tell me what PPG stands for because the roughneck and he's pounds per gallon. Uh, <laughs> what does it actually stand for? Uh, so the official abbreviation is Patriot Power Group. And we were, so we're actually relatively new. Uh, you know, we've been around for probably since 2019, 2020, but mainly focused on oil and gas operations, electric frack, electrification of oil field facilities, and also uh, large-scale utility plants. So we provide assets for oil field power generation, but we also provide a, like a, a, a good core of our business is just service, servicing power plants, utilities, and anything else that, you know, provides, uh, you know, power to either oil field facilities or, you know, main utility yeah. operations. It's pretty um, interesting space to me because, you know, this is something that we've been creating content on for, two or three years now, you know, we went out to EQT mm-hmm. and looked at an electric frack and, you know, back then a lot of people were like, oh, this is a fad, this is stupid. And, um, it's very overwhelmingly clear that it's not just a fad, that mm-hmm. there's a lot of, um, off-grid power generation happening in upstream oil and gas, but also in just other different, um, industries and, and sectors as well. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about that today. Um, you know, for you, you flew in here from Midland today. Mm-hmm. So we got a, I think you moved to Midland, you said in 2013. So you've been there for 10 years, 10 now. years now, man. You're officially a Midlander. I know. Like you're, you're official. <laughs> I think this is the longest I've ever stayed in any one location in my entire life. Yeah. So that's wild. Yeah. yeah. So you moved there in 2013. That was actually, that's like wild for me to think about that. I moved away 10 years ago. Uh, <laughs> And so, you know, what was your your background before that? You just told me that you were, um, I think, a captain in the Army is what you said. So, um, yeah. so tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so prior to moving to Midland, I was in the Army. So, I, I mean, I joined the Army out of out of college, uh, enlisted in 2004, and actually joined the National Guard at the University of Oklahoma. So I was in the National Guard for a couple of years before I went on active duty. Are you from Oklahoma? I am, yeah. So I was born in Oklahoma City. My okay. whole family's from there. They, nice. They, both my parents went to University of Oklahoma. So it's the only school that I applied to because <laughs> I was focused more on college football when oh, you actually had a good track record in college football <laughs> versus last year. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's that's where I ended up. And I just, you know, after kind of, I kind of made a deal with my parents after 9-11, you know, I wanted to join the military. I've got a very strong military background on, on both sides of my family. Yeah. But they're like, look, you know, we, they're, they're pretty understanding about it. They're like, look, we understand your, you know, your, your need to want to go fight, especially after 9-11. But we also, you know, we want you to go to college and, you know, at least get some education under your belt. So kind of the trade-off was, uh, I did ROTC, the National Guard while I was in college, but then I went on active duty. So I went on active duty in 2007 cool. and then was on active duty until I uh, got out in 2013. So Nice. So you got out in 2013, um, get into the oil and gas business, move out to Midland. Did you get into PowerGen first when you moved there or what, what got you into the oil industry? So I, I was actually placed out there by a headhunter that was taking prior military officers 
and placing them in different jobs around the country. Yeah. And uh, I had two offers on the table. One of them was for an electrical wholesaler in West Texas. The other one was actually for Kinder Morgan in Beaumont. And, you know, the, both of the offers were about the same. And coming out of the military, I'd, I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do. And it really just came down to location. And I talked to a couple of friends of mine and they're like, well, if we had our if we had our pick, we would live in Midland over Beaumont. And so that's, that's <laughs> I had nothing to do with the job. It was, it was surely about location. And it kind of worked out better because I was trying to get close to my family, who's, who's still in Oklahoma at the time. And anyway, I started electrical wholesaling and uh, they wasn't exactly what I was looking for because I was really just kind of doing inside sales and helping to manage a warehouse and, mm -hmm. you know, coming out of the military, it was just, I don't know, it just wasn't as much responsibility as I wanted. Yeah. And so ended up taking a job at, at Slumberjay after that and then worked there for a couple of years, which as big as Slumberjay is, the, you know, the, the business group that I was working under was for pump jacks. So just, you know, conventional rod lift. Yeah. And had a lot of ex-military guys in there. So it was, it was kind of more in my wheelhouse. And then market dropped out in 2016, got laid off. And fortunately, I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall that they were going to do some massive layoffs and started talking with another company that was doing turbine power generation in West mm -hmm. Texas, using flare gas to create power and was using some old Caterpillar Solar 10s and 20s that were like one to two megawatt gas turbines to, yeah. to feed power for production utilities or for production power. And I didn't know anything about power generation, but I knew that I knew what gas flooring was. Yeah. I was like, well, this actually seems like a pretty cool idea to take wasted gas and turn it into electricity. And that's where I got my start. I mean, I was uh, working as a, just working as a field technician, just fixing gas turbines all over the state. That's awesome. Yeah. These uh, gas turbines, you know, I saw my first one like in person a couple of years ago and they're huge mm -hmm. and so complex, right? It's, you know, it's not like just like a, a regular generator. I mean, these things are they're like jet engines. Uh, and so, yeah, I think what's interesting is, um, you know, they were first like being looked at as like, okay, we can do these off grid electric fracks. Um, and there's a ton of uh, potential cost savings there when you look at, you know, just diesel mm -hmm. um, savings. You know, I don't know off the top of my head how many gallons of diesel a, a typical frack uh, takes, but it takes a lot. You know, mm -hmm. I always used to j joke around when I was drilling wells and, and fracking. I was like, this is kind of like a circular economy. Uh -huh. Like we use so much diesel to <laughs> extract oil and then send it down to the refinery, process it, uh -huh. make more diesel just to come back to us. And so... Um, that was always intriguing to me. It was like the electric frack side, but then you start looking at like what can be built with like, you know, microgrids mm -hmm. out on leases. Like, Hey, if you have a bunch of ESPs, um, you know, you can start generating your own electricity and, um, you know, obviously Bitcoin mining is a growing, um, asset uh, that you see out on leases. So anyways, just this idea of making these, uh, these little microgrids and distributed energy assets out on oil leases was super fascinating mm -hmm. to me. You know, for you guys now at PPG, obviously, um, I know you guys are doing some stuff in electric frack. Um, I think that uh, y'all are actually going for your first deployment with a with an EMP, um, which you can't talk about that yet. Maybe here in a couple of months, uh, once uh, <laughs> once the job goes successfully, we can talk about that more. Um, is that y'all's main focus is, you know, upstream oil and gas operations, or do y'all see other applications, um, and industries that you're building into as well? I guess it would depend on the type of, type of asset that you're talking about. So we are, 
we're primarily, I mean, our background is primarily air derivatives, gas turbines. So your General Electric's Mitsubishi's, and so that has been our our core business up until you know since we started, mm-hmm. and that's what we're using for powering electric fracks right now. Now these same gas turbines that we're using for electric fracks and other you know large stationary oil and gas applications like compressor facilities that use an immense amount of power or require an immense amount of power. These are the same gas turbines that you're going to see all across the country and all across the world for utility applications or variations of them. So you know your your General Electric TM2500 or LM2500 or LM6000. No throwing a lot of like acronyms and numbers out there, but these are all the same gas turbine power plants that you'll see on utilities all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so another part of our core business is maintaining those power plants. So we own some assets that we're using for electric frack, mm-hmm. but there's a ton of these assets all over the world that need, that just need operations and service. Yeah. And so yeah. that's a, that's a big part of our So you actually have a big service side to the mm-hmm. business yeah. where y'all are maintaining and serving, uh, servicing these assets. You know, it's interesting. I'd love to dive a little bit more into um, the power generation side, like at, uh, you know, for actual utilities. Because this is something, you know, like I remember, I don't know, two years ago, maybe there's an HEB here in Houston and everyone was talking about, you know, like they have this nat gas turbine, apparently that, mm-hmm. you know, they built this little microgrid to where even if they lose grid power, um, electricity, they still have the ability to generate their own electricity mm-hmm. part of hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, moving towards these, and you know, I've always seen like, you know, the big, just like typical um, generators. But do you see like other hospitals and stores and other, you know, just I don't know if you call those like retail spaces? Are they starting to move to larger generators like these and mm-hmm. really think about, hey, how can we produce, you know, a, a lot of power, not just like backup to power the lights, but mm-hmm. how can we actually? power facility, is that kind of where things are moving towards? For for backup power generation, yeah, absolutely. You know, the you know, Winter Storm URI, I think, was a prime example of that. And mm-hmm. HEB is a is a really good case study of that because HEB actually used to have just I think one megawatt diesel generators on yeah. standby outside their outside their uh outside their stores and they switched over to Nat Gas and, you know, parked them there. And you can actually I remember the one in in Midland off the loop, they had a natural gas, or sorry, they had a diesel generator parked there. It was essentially just a tractor trailer size diesel generator. Yeah. And then they switched over to, I think, Enchanted Rock. And it's just a, you know, I don't know, it's a one megawatt natural gas generator that they, you know, poured a concrete pad for, tied a natural gas line into there. So, I mean, it's a permanent fixture mm-hmm. now. And I think they've done that through, I, th- I think, throughout all their stores across the, across Texas. HB is a pretty amazing company they are oh, yeah. i mean if you look at yeah. the supply chain logistics mm-hmm. I mean, like during hurricane harvey i mean running convoys mm-hmm. in Houston. i mean don't get me started on h-e-b I mean, <laughs> they're just an amazing operation uh-huh. in the first place well I, I read an article about them i think they did a, a they, they did a case study it's like okay if an h-e-b location loses power for 24 hours we're going to lose x amount of inventory mm-hmm. you know however many you know hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever it is just due to spoilage and so they ran the analytics to just you know purchase these generators because I, I, they may have been leasing them before. I can't remember. I, I may be incorrect on that. Yeah. But they ended up just you know pulling trigger and just retrofitting everything in their inventory to switch over to these natural gas generators because in the long run, if they lose power, you know just one storm, I mean the generator is going to pay for itself. Yeah. So and you'll see these. I think I saw uh, there's a Walgreens or uh, something in Midland. I saw the other day that had one on it. And it was Target. Sorry. 
Target has one now. So, I mean, I think you're seeing these all over the country where people realize the value of having a natural gas generator as backup. And it's it's pretty easy to do versus having a diesel generator. Because, I mean, diesel generator, you've, you know, you've got the fuel associated with it. And you have to make sure that, you know, you're treating the fuel so it doesn't. That's the hard, hard part about diesel is that especially, um, you know, if you look at a, a disaster zone like Hurricane mm-hmm. Harvey, I mean, diesel supply goes to zero, mm-hmm. right? And so it's hard sourcing the fuel. Whereas if you're just plumbing in natural gas, you know, that can be delivered all um, mm-hmm. from around the state. And so, and then also, yeah, you know, just the maintenance on, um, you know, treating the fuel mm-hmm. and making sure it's stable. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a tank of diesel that's sitting there for a year or two years without it really cycling through, um, that becomes an issue as mm-hmm. well. And so it's interesting to see where they're going from more, you know, from these, I call them more like a temporary diesel generator setup um, to where it's like, no, we're actually going to, you know, put this thing on a slab mm-hmm. for the foundation for this yeah. to become a piece of permanent structure. Um and run some analysis on the cost benefits to it. And it's like, yeah, like you said, HEB loses, you know, an entire um, store full of inventory, it'll pay for itself. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty interesting way of seeing like these distributed energy assets being uh-huh. being built out. And um, even in the future, you know, you know, say that, that HEB has excess power that it's generating and and it's consuming less mm-hmm. now having the ability to have like virtual power plants where it can send electricity, you know, to the surrounding area, back into the grid, whatever it may be, um, that enables some pretty cool stuff in, in the future. It does. And that's where, that's where you're seeing a lot of the, so, you know, there's companies like ours that provide natural gas turbines or natural gas reciprocating engines for oil and gas applications. And there's you know, that's been part of our core business, but you're seeing companies like ours and others that are, look, we can actually make a good uh, chunk of our revenue from placing standby generators out and, you know, enrolling them in demand response programs to feed power back in the grid. And, mm-hmm. you know, whether we, you know, use, you know, flare gas to power that, you know, linking up with a, an EMP where they, you know, lease the generators from us and provide the maintenance or they just own the asset and we provide the maintenance. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a ton of applications for this, whether it's oil and gas or even for, you know, a target or an HEB, like that generator that's, you know, parked on, you know, any HEB across the state. If they want to, they could, and they, they may have this in place already, but, you know, you can enroll these generators in demand response programs to feed power back on the grid in times yeah. of in times of emergencies. Yeah. But there's, you know, and Generoc, for instance, you know, they make that part of their core business. They've got generator banks all over the state and they mm-hmm. will, you know, feed power, you know, you know, they'll have, you know, six generators on the substation and, you know, those generators may only run for, I don't know, an hour or two out of the year, depending on, you know, when the demand response programs kick in. But yeah. that's, I mean, that's their business though, yeah. you know, and that's, you know, they make their, they make their investment back pretty damn quick when the, you know, the price of yeah. power is upwards of, you know, four or $5,000 a megawatt hour. Yeah. So it's pretty sure. incredible. And, you know, we're, we're seeing you know, a lot of that is, is stemming from again, winter storm Uri from a couple of years ago, cause it just, you know, really highlighted some pretty key weaknesses in Texas. Yeah. Electric I think electric. it's pretty interesting. You know, if you look at the Texas grid alone, um, and ERCOT, you know, Texas is very unique in the fact that we have a ton of wind generation being mm-hmm. built out in solar as well and you know i'm all for every every source of energy but i think that um we may be building out those out a little too aggressively and not investing enough capex and um 
backup generation mm-hmm. or battery storage. And so the problem is, you know, it's like wind, it's like nameplate capacity is up here, but in reality, um, most of the time they're not producing that. And so that opens up opportunities, like you were saying, with like Enchanted Rock, where they have an entire business model. It's like, hey, we're going to have these gen sets out here. And when there's peak demand, we'll fire them up mm-hmm. and um, provide power. And so, yeah, this just, I mean, quickly changing dynamic in, in the grid and energy and, uh, and opens up a ton of opportunity. And when you look at like the upstream oil and gas space, I think that, you know, there's, uh, I saw Matt Wilkes from Profract the other day. This was another day. It was like eight months ago, but, you know, <laughs> close uh, enough. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, wrote this Twitter thread on just kind of breaking down the economics of electric frack versus conventional fracks and the cost savings there. And it's like pretty eye opening. And I've always been kind of curious um, how it will scale on a commercial basis because, you know, it's easy for like EQT up in the Marcellus because, I mean, every pad is a gas pad, mm-hmm. right? And you just, you know, run it through a compressor and all of a sudden you have uh, conditioned gas that you need to run for these. Whereas up in West Texas, um, you may not have the gas supply that you need or maybe sour gas. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I'm assuming for PPG, y'all systems don't handle sour gas. Is that is that a correct assumption? The turbines can. So okay. the turbines can can handle sour gas up to a certain percentage, depending on you know which which model of turbine that you're that you're utilizing. Okay. Uh, you know the the I would say the weak the weak link in the chain in terms of like you know from the gas coming off the wellhead. It going into the inlet on the gas turbine side is, is your compression piece. If you have to compress the gas, you know, there's compression out there that'll handle H2S. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you have to, but, you know, again, it costs more money because you have to, you know, run yeah. all stainless and everything. Like yeah. it's not your, you know, it's not your standard, you know, reciprocating compressor that you just pull off the shelf. Like you have to put a couple more bucks in it to make it able to handle H2S. Yeah. Uh, if there's any gas conditioning to pull any liquids out, I mean, you have to make sure that that can handle H2S. So the turbine itself, there's there's turbines out there that will take upwards of 5% H2S oh, really? and burn all day long. Now their efficiencies are terrible, yeah. but the technology is there for it to work. Yeah. But honestly, we don't, we really don't encounter a lot of field gas situations anymore where we have to worry about H2S, anything over above, you know, maybe half a percent. Yeah. I mean, most of the time yeah. it's, the at least the pads that we're operating on, it's it's pretty neg- it's pretty negligible, and gotcha. so we really don't have to worry about it. Not, not that much of an issue. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've seen um, like some of the the doubts that I've heard of. You know, especially like when it comes to Bitcoin mining, is that um, you know running gas through a generator instead of flaring it, like it's not any more efficient. Mm-hmm. You know, Crusoe has some studies out there that say that one, there's some misassumptions on flaring gas and how efficient it is at burning methane. And if you have a um, high efficiency generator that you actually um, have less emissions. Um, have y'all, do y'all have any information or thoughts on that? You know, when you look at like saying, hey, we're gonna, going to reduce uh, methane flaring and generate electricity. You know, some people out there will say that's actually not any better for the environment. It's You're still combusting it and, um, you know, emitting. Do y'all have any any information or thoughts on that? Because that's something like I'm constantly trying to learn about and see if there are actually efficiency gains when it comes to emissions from flaring versus running it through a gen set. 
So one of the very first jobs that I worked on, uh, and I, I probably shouldn't name the operator, but <laughs> um, they you were actually, it up in your head, yeah, whoever you want it to be. <laughs> I'll just say they were, they're in West Texas. We'll just leave it at that. So we were, I was running a, a couple Caterpillar solar gas turbines for some production leases for them and just prov- you know, providing power for ESPs and pump jacks and stuff like that. They were actually inquiring if they could get more gas turbines to just burn the flare gas with because they're more efficient at burning the flare gas and they burn it cleaner because the, you know, the turbine, oh, really? yeah, the turbine burns, I think the exhaust deck on it, you know, varies between 800 to, you know, a thousand degrees. And so it burns a lot more efficiently than a flare because you're just burning at hotter temperatures. You're just moving a lot more air and a lot more volume through it. So it just, it just burns at a heart. Yeah. But they're, yeah, they, they didn't have a need for power. They're just like, can we just, can we just have more turbines to burn the flare gas? Cause you're also burning more, more fuel too. You know, we're uh, on the smaller turbines, you're burning about you know, a few hundred MCF a day, like it's not a lot, but on yeah. some of the bigger turbines, like your 30 megawatt turbines that we're using for frack, you know, you can burn upwards of four to 5 million a day. Wow. And so one operator actually was doing that because they had so much gas that they were producing. So they had one turbine providing power to the lease and we're actually running a, so we're running a mixture of like production equipment and drilling rigs off this one turbine and the other turbine was sitting there just spinning idly, just burning gas because they were producing so much, Yeah, but they couldn't they weren't flaring as much. Yeah. So, and it was still burning it cleanly. Like we were still doing emission stack tests on it. Yeah. And, you know, meeting all the emissions requirements. I mean, it wasn't, they weren't in violation of doing anything. It was kind yeah. of honestly, you know, it's kind of a waste of a turbine because it wasn't providing any power, <laughs> but they didn't have any, anywhere to send it. Power, That's actually so. super uh, intriguing. I hadn't thought about that, mm-hmm. that if it is more efficient than flaring, like, hey, we'll take some of them and we don't care if it's actually producing electricity to go anywhere mm-hmm. is just more efficient than the flare stack is. It's so. a very, very expensive flare. That's a, yeah, that's what I was going to say, mm-hmm. the economics, you know, maybe for some of your bigger operators, it makes sense just based on the uh, ESG accounting <laughs> that they have to go through. <laughs> but, you know, for your smaller operators, probably still makes sense to yeah. put out a, a, a cheap flare stack. But no, that's, um, but even that, you know, you look at that and it's like, you have electricity generated there. It's like, so if you're an EMP that's doing that and you're listening to this, like get some Bitcoin miners out there, <laughs> at least mine, it's and, money. And so that's the thing. Like I've been, you know, I was trying to push Bitcoin mining to EMPs probably since, uh, 2017. I yeah. think I was approached by, I was approached by a couple of different smaller Bitcoin miners. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, I met him somewhere out in Midland, told him I did power generation. I was using flare gas to generate power. It's like, how do we get Bitcoin miners out there? Yeah, I said, well, it's it's pretty easy. But once we started having the conversations with the EMPs, they, uh, you know, the production engineers were all over it because there's a lot of like, you know, younger production engineers that took an interest to Bitcoin. It's like, yes, it sounds great. Like, we would love to do this because we have a ton of flare gas. But once you take into account the royalties associated with that gas, a lot of these EMPs couldn't figure out how to because they didn't want to get paid in Bitcoin. They want to get paid in dollars. Mm. Then they're like, how do we, you know, how do we tell the the royalty owners of the gas were using their gas to mine Bitcoin. And then like, how do we you know, physically account for this and pay them back for the gas that we're using to mine Bitcoin with? And yeah. so it just kind of became a concept that they just didn't want to pursue any further because it was just, it was just so new to them. They just didn't know how to do it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, those are the very early days of, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. talking about Bitcoin mining. A lot of you, you know, we just had uh, our Empower conference last week and you had Eric Mullins there, you know, the CEO of Lime Rock and, you know, Chuck and I, um, 
before last year's in power, we went and sat down with Lime Rock and just educated them. You know, I think they had like 20 people from across Lime Rock there and just, you know, just telling them. And they said that the most valuable thing that we told them in that meeting was like, hey, you will get sued by <laughs> your landowners. And that allowed them to like go think through those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they ended up partnering up with uh, Bitcoin miners to just sell the gas. So mm-hmm. they're not actually mining internally, mm-hmm. but, you know, they found out a solution um, to get rid of their flared gas. And so I think that those things are, you know, getting, getting worked out um, and, you know, not to go too, too deep down this hole, but it's like, you can figure out those things. I mean, pay spot price for, you know, Henry Hub, that gas year. And then if you want to, you start up a midstream company and it's like, Hey, midstream company's paying for the gas and then they're mining with it. And so it's a completely different entity and operation, but also I'm not at a, uh, land and title attorney. So don't, uh, don't take my <laughs> advice over the show for it. But no, you look at that and I mean, you know, you, you look at the opportunity set one, um, by available technology, um, two by younger engineers in these EMPs. And that's what opens up, you know, the opportunity for electric fracks and microgrids and all of these different things. And so, um, I don't know if you ever saw my video I did. Um, I went to ST9's um, mm-hmm. um, office or their uh, production uh, factory and like, you know, looked at them making this electric frack. And I'm, I was like, man, these like aren't just retrofitted conventional frack pumps and trucks anymore. I mean, these are like built from scratch, built for mm-hmm. purpose, electric fracks. And I think that that's cool as hell. You know, I remember being out on frack jobs back in 2011, 2012. And, you know, of course we had our conventional diesels, but then I remember like, you know, frack fleets coming out that had, uh, gas turbines on them Mm -hmm. and they were like helicopter engines. And I mean, just like loud as shit, man. So loud. And like, people were trying new, new things. Uh And I don't think that the turbines ever really took off too much, but the electric frack, I mean, people, people see the benefit of it. What like blew my mind is like electric drilling rigs mm-hmm. and how they were just like pulling. They're like, no, we actually just tie up to the grid yeah. and pull because they don't have near the draw, the power draw that electric fracks have. And that like blew my mind coming from like the old school uh-huh. diesel Kelly rigs that I worked on to like, damn, we're just plugging this thing into the grid and running it on electricity. So it's a really exciting time. And also like one thing that like both like oil and gas industry sees the benefit of it. And this is also something that's very good in the public's mm-hmm. eye. And so you can go get your furthest, you know, left-leaning climate hawk people. And like, <laughs> they love this initiative too. Yeah. And it's it's going to get even more exciting in the next couple of years. I mean, like, like I said, we're doing our first, our first electric frack off the grid next month. There's been a couple operators that have done it in West Texas, you know, upwards of, you know, I think 20 megawatts off the utility. So it's, I mean, it's it's very possible. It's very doable. I mean, there's people that are, that have done it. It's you know what what I've been trying to like preach to all of our customers because I, I mainly deal with electrical engineers. Yeah. Uh, on the EMP side, because everything that falls under either you know production drilling or frack still has to go through their electrical engineering group, especially with the amount of power that we're dealing with, and also especially since we're talking about tying equipment back onto the grid. Yeah. There's going to be so much change i think that you're going to see on the planning side so like you take drilling for instance uh you know we've we've electrified a bunch of different rigs in west texas using you know it's a basic transformer skid that slides in between the generators and the vft house so you can electrify the drilling rig off uh off the utility power 
it's such a paradigm shift for these drillers because they're so used to using diesel generators mm-hmm. and they're not used in the, you know, the electrical department within these EMPs is not used to having to plan for electrical infrastructure build outs while they're still drilling. All that stuff usually comes, you know, later in the production, like, you know, after the hole has been drilled cracked. Yeah. And so that's what I'm seeing on my end is after, you know, years and years and years of like preaching this to our customers, they're starting to build out their electrical infrastructure prior to drilling so they can run the drilling rings off of it so they could run the frack fleets off of it and that way you know once the frack's done i mean everything's already built and you just you know drop an esp in the hole and start pumping yeah so that's interesting you're actually seeing a shift in the planning where it's now shifting sooner where these guys are mm-hmm. like as soon as we're building the pad um in the lease we're doing the electrical engineering instead of after you know frack gets off and and uh-huh. figuring out how we how our production equipment so timelines are actually shifting up so I, the, the EMP that we're doing this electric frack off the utility for next month, I had a conversation with him a couple of days ago and he had a, a, uh, uh, he said something pretty interesting to me when they're, when they were planning to build out all their line infrastructure and their substations, he's like, we're pretty much hanging sausage on the lines. And kind of what he meant by that is like the diameter of the wire that they're hanging to pull off these substations is so thick. That's what he meant by hanging sausage because they are planning to build out or they've already built out this infrastructure with the plan of running all their drilling rigs off the utility and their frack fleets off the utility. And so they've just beefed up all their electrical infrastructure to accommodate for it. Yeah. Because when I was asking them how much capacity that they had to run the flak, flak fleet, uh, the <laughs> frack fleet, say that 10 times fast. Yeah. Um, he was, he's like, dude, you're going to have enough power to run probably two fracks in this particular field that you're, that you're looking at. So they've, they finally like, and I'm not going to say I'm responsible for this, but I think yeah. they finally like read the writing on the wall in terms of, you know, what is coming down the pipe from, uh, from drilling all the way through production, because it's not just your electric frack fleets and your electric drilling rigs, uh, gas lift compressors that were tr- traditionally reciprocating engines are now switching over to electric. So there's so much electrical demand that's yeah. getting put on the grid. Everything's got to get um, changed to accommodate it. I think the the thing that's interesting to me is you build out all this infrastructure and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the frack job, you know, consumes the majority of, of the power when looking at, you know, drilling or production. And so say you build out all this infrastructure to handle all of these frack jobs, but after you're done drilling and completing on that lease, it seems like you're going to have this huge capacity of uh, power and don't really have a use for it because the production operations, um, you know, take such a small amount. Is that, do you think that that's fair to assume? Like if you beef up all this power infrastructure, like you're going to need it during the fracking operations, but then after that, there may not be a need for it. So you're left with excess uh, capacity. I don't think so. Cause I mean, again, I think they're just, they're, they're beefing up their infrastructure to accommodate just the change that they're seeing on the electrical side aside from the frack, like mainly electric gas lift. Yeah. So because these, you know, your uh, your traditional gas lift compressor, you know, a couple hundred horsepower, whatever it is, we're throwing a number out there, yeah. are getting replaced with these, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred horsepower gas lift compressors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only for gas lift, but also midstream compressor stations too. There's these... Uh, massive electrical engine their electrical motors that are getting put on compression stations uh, gas lifts for production wells um even your swds i mean it's not uncommon to see an swd that's you know upwards of you know, a couple thousand horsepower yeah all electric motors and so yeah. i don't think that they're 
I don't think they're going to have excess uh, capacity. I think yeah. just they have to build out this infrastructure to accommodate just for all the demand that they're going to have. Yeah. So they're not having to rebuild infrastructure, you know, yeah. five years from now. Yeah. So I, I, I like to see this. Hopefully, they're just planning for the future because everything is just switching over to electric. Yeah. No, it's uh, super interesting to me. I'm just seeing this pretty big shift in the way that people are looking at power generation and electrifying everything. And I think that it's super cool. I mean, I wrote this Twitter thread a couple of years back, but I was like, you know, if you're interested in, you know, climate tech and sustainability as like the biggest sustainability efforts over the next 10 to 20 years are kind of going to come within the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. And it's things like this, like electrifying um, operations and, you know, really being able to drive down emissions on the pad, um, you know, cut, mitigate meth methane emissions um, from flaring. And, you know, just you think about the, the process of transporting, producing diesel and the cost savings that come with that. And so what's cool about like oil and gas is oil and gas is the most capitalistic industry that you'll ever find, right? And so it's like, hey, we can do something and we can make money on it. And at the same time, um, it has some good benefits uh, related to emissions and it's a win-win for, for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think that you look at companies like Diamondback, for instance, have done an amazing job um, cutting down their flared gas. And this is, you know, something that the oil and gas industry is just getting beat up on mm -hmm. and in the media. Anytime someone sees fire in the air they're uh, you know it's not the best it's not the best optic and so anyways it's just cool seeing these like technological solutions come solve the problems and do it in a way that's economically favorable for the operators and i think what's also interesting too is excuse me a couple of customers that i've talked with over the past past year or so are actually looking at building their own power plants so yeah. the the problem you have with remote power generation or temporary power generation is your limit on the amount of capacity you can put back on the grid. So Encore, for instance, you know, I think it's like 10 megawatts that you can sell back per meter. Mm -hmm. And that's in, it's a very bureaucratic red tape process to go through it. So you know, Hurricane, or Hurricane, uh, the winter storm Uri a couple of years ago, we had a bunch of gas turbines running in West Texas that were still operating because they were running on field gas. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't sell the power back in the utility because none of the interconnects were in place and honestly, I mean, it's it's nobody's fault, but if those interconnects were in place, I mean, there's enough idle gas turbine power generation that we were running that had been idled because all the production facilities had shut down. We could have powered probably a good chunk of Midland that had lost power during the winter storm. That's what I think so cool is like, mm -hmm. really the bottleneck is transmission uh -huh. and just getting power to places. And so that's what I was like, start seeing the opportunity in the future for, hey, We've got these assets that are sitting idle. Mm -hmm. They can generate power, get it into the grid, and power Midland Odessa. You know, get them, get them power back up. So, and that's what a lot of these EMPs are looking to do because a lot of them got screwed over on their power hedges. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where all this is stemming from. Is like, what do we do to create our or how or what can we do to create our own power? And not even sell it back to the grid because selling it back into the grid is it's 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 honestly it's super easy to do. Yeah. But like I said, it's a very bureaucratic process to go through to get the interconnects and essentially all the the paperwork in place to yeah to make it happen. So they're they're looking at ways to just build out their own power stations using their produced natural gas 
and build out their own microgrids that they own, not even going through a company like us to lease the power. They'll mm-hmm. just they'll buy the gas turbine, you know, build hundred megawatts of power and yeah. then create because I mean all they're doing right now is they're 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 pulling gas out of the formation, compressing it, selling it, and then in turn they're buying the gas back. Yeah. And so yeah. To, I mean they're buying the gas back in the form of power that's generated from you know, whatever the, wherever the nearest power station is. So why don't yeah. they just do it themselves? No, that's why you're shortening the upstream, midstream, downstream mm-hmm. cycle, right? You're bringing it just right there mm-hmm. on location. So, hey, why are we putting a molecule on a pipeline, sending it to a peaker plant, and then buying mm-hmm. the electricity back when we could just generate it here? And I think this also plays into something that I've talked to, um, we've talked about on previous podcasts. Actually, I just had a, uh, Mush Khan on the show and he's a manufacturing expert here in Houston and we're just kind of jamming out on this whole thesis that manufacturing is coming back onshore. It's coming back from overseas mm-hmm. and it's going to happen in places like Texas, Mexico and other uh, parts of North America. And I actually think that they're going to co-locate with energy assets. Um, you know, if you look at manufacturing, a huge input to that is energy costs. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to start seeing them come out in places like West Texas and build these manufacturing facilities where they have access to cheap and reliable energy. And I think that this just plays into it. It's like you start building power plants out there mm-hmm. on site. Um, you know, you could have, you know, Tesla's battery factory um, out there, you know, any other battery factory um, out there that are actually um, co-locating with energy assets. And so that's why all of this is super exciting to me because I think that this whole Pandora's boxes becoming open <laughs> up on what can be done with distributed energy assets. Yeah, I mean it's it's a pretty phenomenal time to be in the power industry because you know you're looking at a shift not just in Texas all across all across the world because you've got coal plants that are being shut in in favor of switching over to either renewables or natural gas, uh, electric vehicle charging stations, which you know that's that's not as much of a demand on the grid as stuff like data centers mm-hmm. um, and just anything else that was traditionally powered by a, you know, diesel diesel engine or anything like that is, you know, pushing to be switched over to natural gas yeah, or just something that is driven by an electric, electric motor. And so the demand that you're seeing on the grid across the world is just, it's just, it's, it's peaked. And the problem that we're seeing now, just as an, a you know a small oil field service provider, is availability availability of gas turbines. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are. I mean, I could probably count on one hand how many large gas turbines I know that are available within the state of Texas right now that are available for sale. Yeah. Um. Probably, I could probably count on two hands. I can know how many are available TM twenty five hundreds. You know, your thirty two megawatt gas turbines that are available around the world for sale. Like that's that's how slim it is. Uh. You know, GE, Mitsubishi, Caterpillar, I mean, they're all recovering still from COVID supply chain shortages. Yeah. And so everyone is demanding all these power generation assets, but there's just, there's not enough to go around. Yeah. And so, it, and it sucks for the electric frack industry. And that's what I keep having to to tell anyone that's looking to get an electric frack fleet is, yeah, the electric frack fleets are probably going to be there in Q3, Q4 of this year from a handful of different pressure pumpers, but you're not going to power for them. Yeah. And so- you know, me is just the the sales guy. I'm like, you know, I'm trying not to like pester him too much about making a decision. It's like, guys, you're gonna have a fleet without power generation yeah. assets if you don't make a decision soon. Yeah, you know, that's something that uh, 
saw in the Bitcoin mining space too, like Giga Energy, their whole secret sauce was like, we're finding old 70s uh, Caterpillar generators and we rebuild the top end zone mm-hmm. because you can't get you know, just regular uh, gen sets too. We're not even talking about, you know, these big turbines. And so, um, yeah, coming out of COVID, I mean, those are bullwhip effects that we're going to be dealing with for the next, you know, what, 10, 20 years probably. Yeah. And so that's like stupid to think about that, you know, you can count on two hands how many mm-hmm. how many are available. So that's an extreme shortage. Yeah. But um, you know, this is this is all fascinating stuff to me. Um, you know, maybe in a few months we can get out there to Midland and come see uh some of y'all's operations if things are uh, going good with the pilots. But someone's listening to the show and they want to check you guys out. Uh does PPG have a website? Can they find you on LinkedIn? How can they how can they reach out? Yeah, so our website's PPG Energy PPGenergy.net. See, PPG is hard to say. It is. It says, huh? <laughs> I botched it in the, in the intro. <laughs> say PPGenergy.net. PPGenergy.net. I'm okay, on, cool. I'm on LinkedIn, Justin Littman. I think it should be probably pretty easy to find. But. Cool. Yeah, we'll uh, drop some links in the show notes to PPG's website and uh, also to Justin's LinkedIn profile. He's a he's a good dude, so reach out to him if you're in Midland. Uh, take him out for a drink and learn about what's going on in the uh, power gen side because uh, it's pretty pretty interesting stuff. So, dude, appreciate you making it to Houston and talking to us about this. Uh, this is all very fascinating stuff to me, and I'm excited to, to see where it all goes. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to hopefully hopefully having you out next month to check yeah. out our, our first pump on the grids. Yeah, it'd be awesome. So, guys, if you like this, guys and girls, I always say guys. I'm like, <laughs> I have plenty of women that listen to the show too, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> you put like this episode. Please share it with a friend. Give us a review on Spotify and Apple. Uh, also check it out on YouTube. We have the video on YouTube. I've seen our YouTube videos going up. So shout out to everyone that watches us on video. We'll catch y'all on the next episode. Come, 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 come.